Hello and welcome to the holiday episode of Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Mike Bershon. I teach English at McEwen University, and if you follow along with the podcast, you know that many, almost all, of the episodes so far on Triple Bladed Sword have been my lectures for a film course at McEwen. But today, for this holiday, this Christmas episode, I'm actually going to be doing what, you know, is on the label, as it were, the science fiction, the fantasy, and the horror that we read, watch, and play, but of the seasonal variety. So I thought it would be fun to give you some suggestions for reading, for watching, and a little bit for playing if you are into science fiction, fantasy, or horror, because there's always this, there's sort of a general magic to Christmas narratives, even if there isn't a concrete magic, like if, if, if it's not science fiction or it's fantasy or it's horror, like I just watched the anime Tokyo Godfathers the other day, and it ends with this moment that some people might call magical realism, but I think it's really just meant to be that sort of general Christmas magic. There's a bunch of really crazy picaresque coincidences that occur throughout the narrative, but I don't think it's meant to be taken as a fantasy narrative. But the ones that I'm going to talk about today are absolutely science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And for those of you who are regulars to the show, you will also notice that the theme for the show changed today because it's it's the Christmas episode. So that was the tune Epic Christmas Fairy Tale by Sander Music. Just wanted to give a shout out there and then we'll dive in. Now, some of you might listen to this podcast and think, hey, Mike, we don't have any time left to be reading or watching or playing Christmas themed stuff. But uh, I was watching a YouTube video with Jack Black and Aquafina where they answer, you know, the awkward questions from Google. And there was a point at which they were talking about the 12 days of Christmas and going, what are the 12 days? Um, there's Christmas Eve, there's Christmas, and there's Boxing Day, you know. Uh, but the 12 days of Christmas are the 12 days following Christmas, and they go up until January 6th, which is the celebration of Epiphany. And so in my home, even though I'm agnostic, we still celebrate the, I guess, traditional religious church calendar simply because it gives me more time to have my Christmas lights up or to read or to watch or to play something that has a, a seasonal bent to it. So let's start with reading. My recommendations are going to break down into science fiction, fantasy, and horror for each each of the modes, the modes of engagement, as Linda Hutchin calls them in A Theory of Adaptation. I like to reference that uh, as often as I can. Those are the triple blades, One, at least one set. I've got two sets. It's like I'm two-fisting triple-bladed swords. It's completely mental. On the one hand, reading, watching, and playing, and on the other, the three blades of speculative fiction. So let's start with science fiction for our reading. And I'm going to recommend Connie Willis. And you're like, that's not a book, that's an author. You're right. The many times nominated, many times winner of the Hugo, the Nebula, so many science fiction and fantasy awards. Connie Willis is one of my favorite writers for Christmas content, bar none. I can't comment on the stuff that she's written that isn't Christmas, that isn't seasonally themed, but... Obviously, she's, she's, a, she's a powerhouse. But one of my favorite novels to read at the Christmas season, or any time, really, is Doomsday Book. And it's a, it's a mix of time travel narrative where a Oxford academic, like a young 
student academic in history is sent back in time to the medieval period. And it's the first time anyone's ever been sent back to do this. So in the world that Connie Willis has built for many of her novels, there's this use of time travel for observation of history. What they learn initially when they get time travel is that you can't change anything in the past, can't be done. And so, well, what can you do? You can go back and observe and you can learn a whole bunch of stuff. So it's really useful for history scholars. They get to go and do field work. And that's basically what this young woman, Kivrin, is sent back to do. Is to, She's sent back to do field re- research. And there are two competing schools involved here. And the one school is reckless with what they're doing. They're trying to rush into this too quickly. And the other school has done this many times, but not all the way back to the medieval period. It's, it's safer to jump to more recent timelines. So it's, it's one part a time travel narrative. And then it's also one part epidemic slash pandemic narrative, very relevant to this last year, 2020 to the situation with COVID, down to Willis anticipating shortages of things like toilet paper and anticipating that the United States would not want to wear masks and would sort of push back against that. And all apologies to my American listeners, but, you know, that's one of those things that comes along with is sort of an individual society. Uh, I, I see it at play here in my home province of Alberta, people saying, you can't put masks on me. And Connie Willis had anticipated these things in her fictional speculations. That's not me saying I think that she predicted what's going on with COVID, because I think that's ridiculous. And that's not what science fiction does. Anyway, uh, science fiction is very rarely predicting the future. It's almost always commenting on the present. But it's a, it's a great, massive novel. Uh, it runs over 500 pages in paperback, but it's worth the trip. And I, what I find remarkable about Connie Willis's writing is that it's so accessible, even when she's writing about really mundane things. And so there's this mix of the fantastic going on, where there's time travel, there's plague, but there's so many just normal everyday things and that's what really lends this book it's i guess christmas air because there are people who would say that it can't just be a christmas movie or a christmas book if it takes place at christmas this is the you know the crew that doesn't like die hard being included as christmas movie but i i think that the point at which the narrative begins to be about family begins to be about those those bits of normalcy the mundane it really takes on that christmas air and uh, connie willis's doomsday book does that in spades i can't recommend it enough i'm going to read a passage from it so this takes place very early in the book after they have sent the student back in time and the various academics are gathered to i guess celebrate the uh the event because it's a big deal it's a first first uh, time travel to the medieval period and the guy who set the time travel up has just walked into the bar and said you need to come with me something had gone wrong there had been slippage after all or the first year apprentice had made an error in the calculations perhaps something had gone wrong with the net itself but it had safeties and layers and aborts if anything had gone wrong with the net Kivrin simply couldn't have gone through, and Badri had said he'd got the fix. It had to be the slippage. It was the only thing that could have gone wrong, and the drops still take place. Ahead, Badri crossed the street, narrowly avoiding a bicycle. Dunworthy barged between two women carrying shopping bags even larger than Mary's and over a white terrier on a leash, and caught sight of him again two doors up. Badri! he called. The tech half-turned and crashed straight into a middle-aged woman with a large flowered umbrella. 
The woman was bent against the rain, holding the umbrella nearly in front of her, and she obviously didn't see Badri either. The umbrella, which was covered with lavender violets, seemed to explode upward and then fell top down onto the pavement. Badri, still plunging blindly ahead, nearly fell over it. Watch where you're going, won't you? The woman said angrily, grabbing at the edge of the umbrella. This is hardly the place to run, then, is it? Badri looked at her and then at the umbrella, and with the same dazed look he had had in the pub. Sorry, Dunworthy could see him say and bend to pick it up. The two of them seemed to wrestle over the expanse of violets for a moment before Badri got hold of the handle and righted the umbrella. He handed it to the woman whose heavy face was red with rage or the cold rain or both. Sorry, she said, raising the handle over her head as if she were going to strike him with it. Is that all you've got to say? He put his hand uncertainly up to his forehead, and then, as he had in the pub, seemed to remember where he was and took off again, practically running. He turned in at Brazenose's gate, and Dunworthy followed, across the quad, in a side door to the laboratory, down a passage, and into the net area. Badri was already at the console, bending over it and frowning at the screen. Dunworthy had been afraid it would be a wash with garbage or worse blank, but it showed the orderly columns of figures and matrices of a fix. "'You got the fix?' Dunworthy said, panting. "'Yes,' Badri said. He turned and looked at Dunworthy. He had stopped frowning, but there was an odd, abstracted look on his face, as if he were trying hard to concentrate. "'When was?' he said, and began to shiver. His voice trailed off as if he had forgotten what he was going to say. The thin glass door banged, and Gilchrist and Mary came in with Latimer at their heels, fumbling with his umbrella. "'What is it? What's happened?' Mary said. "'When was what, Badri?' Dunworthy demanded. I got the fix, Badri said. He turned and looked at the screen. Is this it? Gilchrist said, leaning over his shoulder. What do all these symbols mean? You'll need to translate for us laymen. When was what? Dunworthy repeated. Badri put his hand up to his forehead. There's something wrong, he said. What? Dunworthy shouted. Slippage! Is it the slippage? Slippage? Badri said, shivering so hard he could hardly get the word out. Badree, Mary said, are you all right? Badree got the odd, abstracted look again, as if he were considering the answer. No, he said, and pitched forward across the console. So that's our science fiction. Let's move on to fantasy. And my recommendation is my favorite Christmas read. This is the one that, if you, if you gave me only one to read for the rest of eternity, it would probably be Terry Pratchett's Hogfather. It is... One of his Discworld novels, and if you've never heard of the Discworld books, they're basically Monty Python meets Tolkien. That's a gross oversimplification, but it is to say what we have here is a fully realized fantasy world, a secondary world, but it's infused with very dry British humor. And one of the, if you've ever seen one of the film versions of TV shows that they've done of Terry Pratchett, you still haven't experienced Pratchett. Please don't judge Pratchett by those shows. It's not that they're so bad, but it's that adapting Pratchett for the screen requires the same approach that was taken most recently with the television series of A Series of Unfortunate ev Events. Because the prose that Lemony Snicket... Uh, writes in is essential to the feel of the narrative it's not just plot moments it's this voice and the series got around that by having patrick warburton play lemony snicket 
who is actually a character in the world of a series of unfortunate events. But having an actor who could walk into the scene, and no one can see him, it's this wonderful breaking of the fourth wall, he just... Stand, he'll walk into the middle of a scene and he starts narrating over top of it. And so we get this voice, this narrative voice that's so dry and so witty. And that's essential to what makes Pratchett magical. Now, The Hogfather takes place at the Discworld's Christmas. So again, the Discworld, complete fantasy world. And they have their own Christmas and it's called Hog's Watch because their Santa is called the Hogfather and he's sort of a corpulent pig-like figure. But we know who this is, right? We recognize Santa. And the character of Death, Death is a character and has already in the series had a number of novels devoted to just his story, is taking over for Santa because Santa is unavailable. That's all I'm going to say, because if I say more than that, I am going to wreck something in terms of the surprises of this uh, wonderful, wonderful novel. But I think I can get away with reading a section of the book and not spoil it for you. So this is a moment in The Hogfather where Death is doing the store Santa and we get the, the feel for how things have changed. So we begin from the perspective of the store manager. Behind Crumley, a voice said, And what do you want for Hogswatch, small human? Mr. Crumley turned in horror. In front of, well, he had to think of it as the usurping Hogfather, was a small child of indeterminate sex who seemed to be mostly woolen bobble hat. Mr. Crumley knew how it was supposed to go. It was supposed to go like this. The child was always struck dumb, and the attendant mother would lean forward and catch the Hogfather's eye and say very pointedly in that voice adults use when they're conspiring against children, You want a baby tinkler doll, don't you, Doreen? And the just-like-mummy cookery set you've got in the window, and the cut-out kitchen range book, and what do you say? And the stunned child would murmur, Thank you, and get given a balloon or an orange. This time, though, it didn't work like that. Mother got as far as, you want a, why are your hands on bits of string, child? The child looked down the length of its arms to the dangling mittens affixed to its sleeves. It held them up for inspection. Clubs, it said. I see. Very practical. Are you real? said the bobble hat. What do you think? The bobble hat sniggered. I saw your piggy do a wee it said, and implicit in the tone was the suggestion that this was unlikely to be dethroned as the most enthralling thing the bobble hat had ever seen. Oh, er, uh, good. It had a great big... What do you want for Hog's Watch? said the Hogfather hurriedly. Mother took her economic cue again and said briskly, She wants a... The Hogfather snapped his fingers impatiently. The mother's mouth slammed shut. The child seemed to sense that there was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and spoke quickly. I want an army and a big castle with pointy bits, said the child, and a sword. What do you say? prompted the hogfather. A big sword, said the child after a pause for deep cogitation. That's right. Uncle Heavy nudged the hogfather. They're supposed to thank you, he said. Are you sure? People don't normally. I meant they thank the Hogfather, Albert hissed. Which is you, right? Yes, of course. Ahem. You're supposed to say thank you. 
Thank you. And be good. This is part of the arrangement. Yes. Then we have a contract. The Hogfather reached into his sack and produced a very large model castle with, as correctly interpreted, pointy blue cone roofs on turrets suitable for princesses to be locked in, a box of several hundred assorted knights and warriors, and a sword. It was four feet long and glinted along the blade. The mother took a deep breath. You can't give her that, she screamed. It's not safe. It's a sword, said the Hogfather. They're not meant to be safe. She's a child, shouted Crumley. It's educational. What if she cuts herself? That will be an important lesson. First time I read that, I laughed uproariously. And it, it, apparently it was so crucial to me to remember that section that I put red underline on it. Uh, so that's one of the reasons that, that, that I, I just read that section to you. But wonderful, whimsical comedic fantasy from Terry Pratchett. And one of the bonuses there is that unlike many of the Discworld World novels, which can feel a bit dense in terms of the scope of the secondary world, Hogfather really stands on its own. You can pick up Hogfather, and if you're a fan of fantasy, you should be able to navigate the, the narrative. I think just about anybody would be able to. It's, it's a great introduction to Pratchett's voice, uh, his style, uh, and the way that he approaches all of his other books. But it's a, it's a great entry point. You don't have to have read a whole bunch of other books to jump in on Hogfather. Now, for horror, I'm going to go with James Blaylock's All the Bells on Earth. Not so much as pure horror. Really, at the end of the day, this is dark fantasy. But there's a diabolical sense to this narrative. And people who are into horror would probably like it. Now, it's lumped in with some other books that James Blaylock wrote, and Blaylock's best known for his steampunk writing. He was one of the first three American writers to be doing steampunk, and that's what he's, he's best known for. He's written a lot of other stuff. He's written stuff that is absolutely straight-up horror, supernatural horror, but this was part of what the what Wikipedia has dubbed Blaylock's Christian trilogy, and the other books are The Paper Grail, and the last coin, and then we have all the bells on earth. But don't let that turn you off if you're like, I don't do religion, because this book isn't trying to convert anybody. Blaylock himself is not evangelical in some way. It's not along the same lines as the sort of thing that you'd read if you know of things like Frank Peretti's fiction, or even C.S. Lewis's. Um, but it did remind me of the writing of low-key inkling Charles Williams, and uh, I actually asked James Blaylock about this once. I said, was Charles Williams an influence on you? And he said, yes, I've read some of his stuff, and he'd certainly influenced some of the approaches that he was taking to the Christian trilogy. Williams wrote supernatural thrillers, that's what they've been called, making him ostensibly the horror writer of the Inklings, the Inklings being this group of writers who met at this pub in, in Oxford where we have Tolkien, we have C.S. Lewis, we have Dorothy Sayers, we have Charles Williams. And Charles Williams was far more adventurous, I think, with the theological musings of his fiction, uh, pairing Christian motifs and ideas with the occult. Like he would pair Christian themes with ghosts or the Philosopher's Stone or even tarot cards. So where many Christian writers would probably fear to tread, Williams would just dance in recklessly. And reading Blaylock's so-called Christian trilogy is a little like reading Williams if Charles Williams was from California and had a really great sense of humor. 
And all the bells on, on Earth shares this key concept from Williams's writing, which I think is best identified by Thomas Howard in his study of Charles Williams' work uh, called The Novels of Charles Williams. And he says, T.S. Eliot spoke of the fear in a handful of dust, referring to the enormous and alarming significance of the most ordinary things. The ordinary stuff of our experience seems both to cloak and to reveal more than itself. Everything nudges our elbow. Heaven and hell lurk under every bush. The sarcastic lift of an eyebrow carries the seed of murder since it bespeaks my wish to diminish someone else's existence. To open a door for a man carrying luggage recalls the cross redemption since it is a small case of putting the other person first. We live in the middle of all this, but it is so routine that it is hard to stay alive to it. The prophets and poets have to pluck our sleeves or knock us on the head now and again, not to tell us anything new, but simply to hail us with what has been there all along. If ever there was anyone who saw the fear in a handful of dust, it was Williams. There was no detail of life, nor bodily function, no chance word, no bird or bush, no kiss or shaken fist that did not signal everything with a capital E to him. Like all poets, he saw a correspondence between commonplace things and ultimate things. Everything supplied him with parables and images. An image points to something beyond itself. The wave of a hand is an image of greeting, which is itself one aspect of courtesy, which in turn is a subdivision of charity. The shake of a fist is an image of animosity, which is one aspect of anger, which is one of the seven deadly sins. Everything keeps rising towards heaven or plummeting towards hell. The whole conflict of heaven and hell crops up at our elbow a thousand times a day. And this conflict of heaven and hell is clearly the business of the characters in All the Bells on Earth. Some are more aware of this than others. There's three powerful businessmen who, um, you know, spoiler, have sold their souls to the devil. And they're keenly aware of this sense of heaven and hell being in conflict. Um, as one by one, the price of these businessmen's success comes due. Their souls come up for collection. And in an attempt to thwart the Faustian bargain, one of these men procures a literal bluebird of happiness, which is delivered wrongly. And I think we can really, we can identify with this very strongly this year with the Postal Service being completely swamped this Christmas. Uh, but it gets delivered wrongly to the house of Walt Stebbins, a very ordinary mail-order businessman. And Blaylock loves regular Joes for his protagonists. Walt's a bit of a loser. He's never succeeded financially and relies upon the income of his wife, who's a realtor. She wants kids. He doesn't. He's just about as normal a protagonist as one could find. And with the arrival of the dead bluebird in a jar, so it's the bluebird of happiness, but it's a dead bluebird in a jar, he's thrust into the midst of this conflict between darkness and light, between hell and heaven. Um, we've seen this story before, of course. We you know, might say, oh, I know about, you know, the hell and heaven, good versus evil, and it's not for me. But bear with me. Instead of setting off on a quest for Mount Doom or protecting the virgin who is to be Satan's consort or finding all seven seals and bowls of God's apocalyptic wrath, Walt Stebbins is faced with a very simple problem. The bluebird will grant any wish he makes. To thwart evil, he merely needs to throw the damn thing away. As one character remarks when Walt ponders the possibility of wishing for a million dollars. What if there's $10 million in it? It'll buy you the same thing. Ruination. A ticket straight to hell in an upholstered sedan chair. Bank on it. You'll ride to the devil in comfort. Thankfully, Walt doesn't throw it away or we'd have a very boring book. And while he makes up his mind about what to do with it, 
his str- the struggle between good and evil goes on in very mundane, normal ways, cropping up at Walt's eb- elbow a thousand times a day, to reference the earlier quote. He has to deal with the inconvenience of family visiting for the holidays. His wife's Uncle Henry and Aunt Gladys parked in their motor home on Walt's driveway, evoking shades of Randy Quaid and Christmas vacation, right? Uh, Gladys puts everyone on a nuts and grains diet when all they want is turkey and stuffing. And Uncle Henry doggedly tries to rope Walt into a get-rich-quick scheme involving a pope on a rope, all the while carrying on some dodgy liaisons with a woman who works the counter at a donut shop. And... Other families show up uninvited and nearly unannounced when Nora, Walt's wife, brings her sister's kids home. The sister has gone off to find herself and the father is an abusive alcoholic. Now, we already know Walt doesn't want kids, but he warms up to these and it has that sort of Christmas uh, special feeling to it. All the while, we've got this uh, you've sold your soul to the devil and this cursed bird narrative going on all uh, along, alongside. And so whenever the battle between heaven and hell happens, it happens in these really mundane ways. There's a, at one point, there's a confrontation with this abusive brother-in-law. And it's certainly tense, but the action is mundane. This is an everyday act of kindness. It's not a standoff with a balrog over the abyss. And when there's a confrontation and placation of this woman that Uncle Henry's having a liaison with... One of the two clergymen who's aware of this struggle and actively engaged in it reflects, and he says, I came around this afternoon looking to enlist the two of you in this affair of mine, didn't I? I thought I was up against a pretty formidable dragon, but now I'm inclined to believe Maggie Biggs gets the brass ring. Not cosmic evil, but just a petty, larcenous variety. Petty evil that's met with mundane charity. Walt stubbornly bails Uncle Henry out of the situation with Maggie Biggs through small mundane acts of kindness, that opening of the door recalling the cross, the waved hand signifying greeting, courtesy, and ultimately charity. But it does have some wonderfully creepy moments. So I've talked a lot about charity and whatnot, but that's, that's me making a case for this as a, as a Christmas novel. Uh, it takes place at Christmas. It has very strong Christmas themes. Uh, it is, like many of Blaylock's books, very whimsical. Um, but it also has some, some wonderfully dark moments. Well worth taking a look at if you like your fantasy dark or if you like your horror a little light. And we'll switch over to the second mode of engagement, our second blade. Uh, watch. Things that we watch. The Christmas speculative fiction that we watch. And for uh, science fiction, I'm going to recommend my favorite Doctor Who Christmas special. Uh, the one where it was basically a Christmas carol. And it goes by the same title. This was during the period when Matt Smith was the Doctor. And it had uh, Dumbledore. Michael Gambon is in it. And he plays Scrooge, which was great because I often have felt like Michael Gambon would have made a great Scrooge. And he does. He's an absolutely fabulous Scrooge. But what I love about this episode is that it's not just a tired old rehash of A Christmas Carol. But rather that the Doctor plays the spirits of the past the present and the future and it's done in a very science fictiony way i say science fictiony because it's always timey-wimey with doctor who but it's got that the trappings of uh techno fantasy really um but it looks science fictional right and we we get that in this moment where um the doctor is goofing around with the device that's supposed to control a great storm 
that covers this planet. And this storm is going to result in the crashing of a spaceship and the doctor's companions are on it. And so he wants to fix that. And at one point he, he says, uh, now what's this then? I love this big flashy lighty thing. That's what brought me here. Big flashy lighty things have got me written all over them. Not actually. Give me time and a crayon. Right? I loved, loved lines like that. I'm, I'm a fan of, of Matt Smith. I know many people aren't. I am. He's one of my doctors. But uh, it's a, so again, coming just off of Blaylock, we've got the, that whimsy. I think whimsy is, is not an essential facet of a Christmas narrative, but it certainly signals that we're dealing with one. And there's a good deal of whimsy in this, like flying sharks. Uh, th- the fact that this episode pulls off being a quasi-musical with flying sharks at Christmas time is a testament to the writers and the producers, everyone who worked on those episodes. I love the Doctor Who Christmas uh, episodes. This one is hands down my favorite. That's also because I'm just a huge fan of Dickens's Christmas Carol to begin with, and I like uh, many of the adaptations of it, but this one is very high on my list. So that's my science fiction recommendation. My fantasy recommendation is brand new, and it's Jingle Jangle. It's this Netflix uh, musical, which was just released this December. And there's a line in the movie, finally, after all these years, and I thought when I heard it, yes, absolutely, finally, after all these years, because Jingle Jangle is a steampunk movie. I don't care what your definition for steampunk is. If you watch Jingle Jangle and you go, that's not steampunk, I don't know what you think steampunk is. There's all sorts of uh, techno-fantasy. It's got a sort of Seussian bent to it. Uh, I felt at several points like like what I was seeing on the screen were jing tinglers or flu floopers or tar tinkers, hoo hoovers, etc. Right? There's a whimsy again to the the technology of the this film, and it's it is a musical, so right away it can it it deals with the ridiculousness of its fictional world, of its diegesis by saying, well, it's a musical, and you can get away with stuff in a musical that you can't in other types of of film. Uh, there's certainly some social retrofuturism going on here with racial rep- representation with a primarily black cast and all of the major players being black actors with the exception of Ricky Martin who voices this uh, and and does it with comedic brilliance he voices this remarkable doll but we've got Forrest Whitaker and we've got Keegan-Michael Key and it was so fun to see Felicia Rashad uh, Miss Huxtable from The Cosby Show in something again and maybe she's been in a ton of stuff and I've just been completely unaware of it because great big white guy here and she was you know wonderful in the frame narrative for this uh for this movie it's delightful but it is in the end one of those very very positive sentimental christmas stories so if that is not your jam you're not going to enjoy it um but it's filled with all this wonderful steampunk production design very vintage very hyper victorian and the musical creates this hyper reality where the steampunk can absolutely work whereas in other modes or genres it tends to fall apart because it's it's ridiculous right you know you've got a robot that just works on gears people are like well that wouldn't work in a musical no one cares feels a little bit like chitty chitty bang bang crossed with mary poppins crossed with the whiz and apparently chitty chitty bang bang was one of the inspirations for the creation of this of this musical where the writer loved chitty chitty bang bang but did not see himself in it just like with the whiz where it was like oz was not a place for black people it was filled with white people and the whiz was a response to that 
um, Jingle Jangle feels like a response and is actually, I mean, we don't have to say feels like, is a response to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And I, I would often, when I was working on steampunk with my, uh, my, my book and my dissertation, people would, would say, are there any good steampunk films? And my response is always yes in Japan. But in America, there aren't a lot of good steampunk films. Uh, there are a few. Many of them are guilty pleasures. So if you're listening along and you're like, but I love Van Helsing. I love Van Helsing too, but it's not a great film. It's just fun. Whereas this felt like quality film. It's a, it's a musical, so if you don't like musicals, you're going to go, I didn't like it. But you not liking it is not the same thing as, as quality. But I do think it's a really well-made film that embraces the ridiculousness of steampunk in that it doesn't care to explain how anything works because it's unnecessary to what the story is about. The story is about family coming back together. And the steampunk is just these this backdrop for it. Although it certainly works in some thematic ways in terms of how the characters interact with each other. But it's, it's, a, it's a lovely movie, great music, and well worth your time. If, if steampunk's your jam, if whimsy's your jam, if you like musicals, you're going to love this. Really, really great addition to my own family's yearly watching, I'm sure. All right, so that's our fantasy, because steampunk is ultimately fantasy. Anybody who tells you steampunk is science fiction, I, they're, they're going to need to come and talk to me, because there are very few really genuinely science fiction works that are steampunk. That's a conversation for another day. <laughs> uh, my third watch, my third recommended watch is Rare Exports. And this is a Finnish movie. And it, again, is light horror. I, I'm not a big fan of slasher movies. So if you're like, well, where's Black Christmas, man? I'm probably never going to recommend it. I don't like my Christmas that dark. If that's what you love, carry on just not for me. So Rare Exports is some lighthearted dark fantasy slash horror where we've got a British research group taking core samples on the mountain where in Finnish lore Santa lives. Korvatuntari is the name of the mountain and uh, I'm not going to tell you who's in the film because you won't know who they are unless you live in Finland and I won't pronounce their names well anyway. But this British research group taking these core samples awakens something in the mountain. And at the beginning of the film, it looks like it's Santa. Um, but it's like dark Santa. So it's creepy Santa. Uh, you can take a look at the trailer and you're going to get an idea of what, what that looks like. There are small homages to the thing, but you don't get prosthetic body horror in this movie. Uh, again, like so many Christmas movies, this is a movie about family and a family recovering from loss. Uh, but it's also this wonderful adventure where the, this very, very dark vision of Santa, or is it, uh, shows up and begins murdering animals. And uh, some of the locals take it upon themselves to deal with this problem. It's a nice little adventure flick. Not too scary, but I just think it's a ton of fun. I don't want to say more about it because movies like that rely so much on surprise. So I want you to be able to discover that for yourself. So those are my recommended watches. And we finally turn to play. For me, every year, my gaming group, we play Dungeons and Dragons and a bunch of other role-playing games. We always have a Christmas-themed game. And in gaming circles, there's a bit of a joke, a play on the name of Christmas and a mechanic from role-playing games, which is when you roll really well, you get a critical hit or a critical roll. And that's been shortened to just saying it's a crit. So it's Christmas, right? Instead of Christmas, Christmas. And every year for the last 
I'd say five or six years, my gaming group has celebrated Christmas, and I thought I would share some of my approaches with you. So if you're a gamer, if you're a dungeon master, if you're a player, you can grab some of these ideas, port it over into your game, you know, play it during the 12 days of Christmas. There's still time this year, people. There's still time. Now, the ones that I'm going to talk about today are inspired by a few different things, but I always use the maps from Heroic Maps. That's the name of the company. You can find them on drivethroughrpg.com. And Heroic Maps always has Christmas specials. Every year they have holiday specials. You can get their products for a little cheaper than you normally would, the ones that are related to the season. Um, so they have ones like a Krampus layer. And when we played that one out, uh, we, we tried to do it almost DM-less and we were just making it up as a group uh, using um, uh, Dungeon World and really leaning into one of the premises of Dungeon World, which is play to see what happens. And someone came up with the idea that once we were in this Krampus monster's lair, and for those of you who don't know the legend of Krampus, this was like this European part, this European tradition that went along with Santa, where if you were the bad kid, Krampus came around, he straight up looks like, you know, your classic European Satan. Um, and he would like beat you up, throw you in a bag and beat the crap out of you. Um, so, you know, if you, if you're getting coal in your stocking, you're, you're way ahead of the game. At least you don't have Krampus kicking the shit out of you. So we, we had this idea that maybe it would be cool if we went inside the bag, that we were there to rescue children, right? We thought, well, what if they're in the bag? And when, once you got in the bag, then there was like all, it's like a nightmare realm. Uh, so that was a ton of fun. And just that alone, if you take that heroic map, the Krampus layer, and you put it together with the concept of a Krampus monster, and there are different stats for it all over the web. Do a, do a search for Krampus stats, D&D &D or 5e or whatever, and you're going to find stats for that, no problem. But then, you know, make the, make the world even a little bigger by having this bag be a portal to a sort of infernal realm, somewhat something like the Shadowfell, right? Uh, for those who are D&D &D fans, Shadowfell is the upside down dark version of the world that you normally play in in Dungeons and Dragons. And speaking of the Shadowfell, this last year I used a very small portion of a module called Riddle of the Raven Queen, which you can find again on DriveThruRPG. It's by Claire Hoffman, James Intocasso, Greg Marks, and Travis Woodall. Even though I used only a small portion of this module, I think the whole module is absolutely solid. But uh, I had I had a sort of two-part game for this year's Christmas, and in the first part, I was doing a D and D riff on the adventure of protecting the Christ Child by having a woman who was a celestial with an uh, an Asimar child pursued by a host of demons, a demonic horde, and they the the characters had to protect this woman and her child on Simril night. Simril is the D&D &D version of Yule or Christmas. And so they had this great big melee against all these demons that were rushing in. And again, I used a, uh, a heroic maps map for that. I used the map Isenthorpe or Yesenthorpe. I think it's Isenthorpe, but it's spelled Y-S-E-N-T-H-O-R-P. And I made that the location where everyone was having a wonderful Simril celebration when suddenly all these demons descend upon the party because uh, the woman has has come to the local inn you know i get to play on the whole there was no room at the inn business and then uh and then have this horde of demons uh 
come and you get to have a great big Christmas battle. Well, right at the end, uh, there was one of those moments of, you know, improvisation as a dungeon master with one of your players. And one of my players is a Shadar Kai, which is an elf from the Shadowfell. And I thought, uh, you know, I'm going to throw him some Shadowfell content. So I had the, the child and the mother kidnapped by Shadar Kai agents who took them back to the Shadowfell as part of a, a larger plot. And I knew right away, I was like, oh, yeah, Riddle of the Raven Queen, that middle section, there's this middle section for Riddle of the Raven Queen, which fits very, very nicely into a Christmas game. In fact, you wouldn't have to do any of the whole kidnapped child and woman business to use this at Christmas. It it just feels utterly Dickensian. And there's this one section, and you're not even really supposed to play that crap out of it. It's supposed to be for flavor, but because once you're in the Shadowfell, uh, you begin to lose yourself. You lose memories. They're they're taken from you if you uh, fail a a save. And there's a waif, you know, like a street child. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's a woman weeping and her children have been taken. And I'm like, this is all Dickens. This feels so Dickensian. Or it feels a little bit like... Hans Christian Andersen, uh, which I often associate with Christmas as well. Uh, so the, the content in the middle of the Riddle of the Raven Queen is really, really great stuff. And for that, I used two maps from Heroic Maps, although we only ended up using the one. I threw out the very end of the conclusion. This is, you know how games can be. They just run off in all sorts of wonderful new directions. But I used the map from Heroic Maps for Delete Alley Night gorgeous gorgeous map it's so cool it just it's got all this like these magical miasmas uh in the streets and i i split the party up into all their different little scenarios and they played those out over the course of the night and it was an absolute blast so that is another one that you can you can check out uh with these these lost memories uh sort of approach but if you just take a look at those heroic maps that they release at this time of year and they release them on special Uh, you're going to get a ton of ideas for your Christmas seasonal Yule holiday game. And I'm going to give a shout out to Heroic Maps. They've got a wonderful Christmas present bundle this year. Christmas present bundle. Uh, Undead. Uh, it, it would normally retail for 68.44 USD. It's on for 13.69 right now. And there are 10 maps in this thing and they're all intensely evocative if you like me are someone who plays along the lines like as a dungeon master you do the whole lazy dm thing sly flourish is a guide to you know being a lazy dungeon master you can do some really great improvisational stuff with heroic maps content so highly recommend it check that out Uh, those ones aren't quite so christmassy but they'll get you through the next year But if you're looking for something more seasonal, then you would want to check out uh, Heroic Maps, Giant Maps, Frost Delve, Dungeon of the Ice Lich. It's a beautiful, beautiful map, and it's on special right now for $2.50. I am not being paid by (laughs) Heroic Maps to tell you this at all. This is not me creating like ad content in the middle of my podcast. Uh, This is just me loving Heroic Maps content so much that I want to let you know about them if you don't know about them. If you are a D&D fan and you're playing on any virtual tabletop system, you want to get yourself some Heroic Maps. So there you go. Uh, We have actually now, for the first time since this podcast began, looked at the science fiction, the fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play at this festive time of the year. 
I'm recording this on the darkest day of the year, which I hope will become a tradition for me because I've always loved the mystique of the darkest day of the year. That is just a slight sliver of sunlight, especially for those of us living way up north. And, uh, and then this wonderful night of lights. For those of us who, you know, have lights out on our lawns or if you're taking in some of the wonderful displays that are happening around your city or your town. But whatever it is that you're doing this uh, holiday season, I hope that you're staying safe and that uh, you are able to find some joy here at the end of a very uncertain year. So Merry Christmas. Happy holidays from me here at Triple Bladed Sword. I will see you soon for more fantasy, science fiction and horror.